You're listening to the Family Discipleship Podcast, a podcast of training the church. The wisdom in scripture is that vishinantam nevedecha, parents need to chisel the law in the hearts of their kids, recognizing that kids are not innately good. Yeah. And you look to see what characteristic of that child measured when the child was 12 years old. Most accurately predicts health and wealth and happiness 20 years later. Well, it's not grades at school. It's not emotional stability. It's not friendliness. It is self-control. Self-control. It turns out that what a girl needs to become a woman of faith is very different from what a boy needs to become a man of faith. This is Adam Griffin. I'm here with my co-host today, Mrs. Cassie Bryant. How are you doing today, Cassie? I'm doing great. Can you guys hear the leaf blower outside by any chance? No, I wish I could. Oh, Your microphone is so high quality that oh, we're good. missing all the landscaping it's in the It's all I can hear. That's <laughs> great. <laughs> hey, guys. Today, we have a very prestigious guest with us, an author, an educator, a really tremendous man whose thoughts have made a big difference, Dr. Leonard Sachs. Hey, Dr. Sachs, how are you today? Thanks for inviting me. Well, we're so happy to have you with us. Before we jump into our conversation, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about uh, your personal history that led to investing all this work you've done mm -hmm. in writing these books about child development that have been so helpful. What led to wanting to research these things? Well, I certainly never planned it that way. I am a family doctor and started my practice uh, in Montgomery County, Maryland, outside Washington, D.C. And I also have a doctorate in psychology, Ph.D. in psychology and M.D., both from the University of Pennsylvania. And that's a little unusual. There aren't many family doctors or pediatricians who also are Ph.D. psychologists, but, but uh, that is my background. And so... I was kind of paying attention when I had this growing number of boys uh, come into the office with mom or dad waving a note from the school saying uh, Justin or Damien or Carlos or whatever, not paying attention at school. Mm. And I started visiting schools and I became convinced that in many cases, not all, but in many cases, the real problem was not actually in the boy at all, but in the school. And their lack of awareness that what a five-year-old boy needs in order to get excited about phonics is different from what a five-year-old girl needs to get excited about phonics. Uh, they were not paying attention to girl-boy differences at all. Mm. And that led me to write my first book, Why Gender Matters, just sharing what I'd observed as a family doctor, but also bringing in a lot of the scholarly research to support that this is not just a guess, that we've got lots of research on this point. Mm. And the success of that book led to my second book, Boys Adrift, this growing phenomenon of boys who are disengaged and unmotivated, would rather stay in their bedroom and play video games. Yeah. But girls are not the winners here. Uh, there's just this explosion and anxiety and depression among girls. And that led to my book, Girls on the Edge. And then more recently, again, observing from the perspective of a family doctor, the confusion that many parents have about their role mm -hmm. and letting kids set the agenda when it's not in the kid's best interest because parents 
don't, many of them don't seem to know what their role is. And that led to my book, The Collapse of Parenting, which is my only book to be a New York Times bestseller. Hmm. Congrats. So this study that you've done about gender that kind of kicked off all of your, your authorship that's just been so helpful, it seems like our culture is trending towards saying even more so maybe now than when the first book came out that gender really doesn't matter that much. Can you tell us a little bit, just summarize that research that revealed the importance of gender? What did you see in the difference between the yeah. way boys and girls were learning? Well, so I wrote that first book, Why Gender Matters, published by Doubleday in 2005. The first edition has half a page on transgender because it really wasn't a thing back then. Yeah. So then the publisher asked me to write a revised edition. The revised edition has 12 chapters, the last four of which are gender nonconforming, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and intersex. Because as you have just hinted, it this has exploded. And statements that 20 years ago would have been banal and obvious and not controversial, like girls and boys are different. Yeah. Now can get you canceled as a bigot. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. saying that there are innate differences between girls and boys. I've, I've had these debates firsthand with professors at University of Wisconsin-Madison, University of Texas-Austin. So traditional common-sense beliefs now can get you canceled uh, right. at uh, many leading universities. Yeah, so... Cassie's a mom of three girls. I'm a father of three boys. So if it's all right, I thought I'd ask you some questions about boys, boys adrift. And Cassie will ask you some questions about girls and girls on the edge, the book you wrote. Now in, in Boys Adrift, you talk about how you would think that scientific research showing how boys and girls' brains develop differently would lead to accommodations in the educational system for those same developmental differences. Can you talk to us a little bit about, about those differences as well as why you think sure. our educational system is not making those kinds of adjustments and maybe even what accommodations would serve our boys better? Wow, okay. Well, that's a big uh, big topic. But, just uh, let's start with, <laughs> with some of the research. So... I cite a really astonishing study quite recent where researchers recruited women in the third trimester of pregnancy and did high-resolution MRI scans looking at the babies in the mother's womb. So these are babies not yet born. Mm -hmm. And looking at the brain, and you find dramatic differences with no overlap between the sexes in terms of the organization and the connectivity with girls having stronger connections in some regions and boys having much stronger connections in other regions, developing along very different trajectories. And again, this is prior to birth. You cannot attribute this to any kind of culture yeah. because this is clearly innate. It's prenatal. And it brings you back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It doesn't say black and white, he created them. It doesn't say Asian and Hispanic, he created them. Black, white, Asian, and Hispanic are man-made. But male and female are of God. We are born male or female. That is an empirical reality. Uh, now, there is a rare condition called intersex, uh, so, for instance, a rare condition in which uh, you have an XXXY chimera, an individual who's a fusion of male and female chromosomal complements. If you add up all such intersex conditions at the highest possible estimates, you get to a total number of 2 in 10,000 live births. 2 in 10,000 live wow. births who are 
uh, both male and female, or neither male nor female, truly intersex individuals. Well, two in 10,000 is extremely rare. It's less common than conjoined twins, Siamese twins. Mm -hmm. We don't create a theory of personality uh, built around Siamese twins because we mm. recognize that Siamese twins are a rare anomaly and not mm. a normal variation. Intersex individuals likewise are a rare anomaly that will need medical care. They are not a normal variation. So the evidence is actually overwhelming, and you'll find this evidence in my book, Why Gender Matters. But when you debate the professors uh, at the leading universities, Number one, they've never heard of this research. Number two, they have no interest in it. Mm. They have an astonishing lack of curiosity. A, I was doing a workshop for teachers in Austin, Texas, and a teacher told me how she is earning her master's uh, in education at the University of Texas, Austin, and she took my book, Why Gender Matters, to her professor. And she handed the book to the professor. She said, I, I think I'd like to lend you my copy of this book. I think you'd really find it interesting. And she told me the professor looked at the cover, which is just the words. There's yeah. no pictures. It's just words. It says, why gender matters? What parents and teachers need to know about the emerging science of sex differences. And she told me the professor recoiled <laughs> as if from an unclean thing. And, and the professor said, I have no interest in reading such sexist rubbish. Wow. Talk about close-minded. Uh, the, the mainstream, by which I mean Harvard Graduate School of Education, Columbia Barnard Teachers College, University of Texas Austin, University of Wisconsin-Madison, they have insulated themselves from this research. They don't read it. They don't want to know about it. They don't discuss it. Hmm. Uh, they are devotees of people like Judith Butler, professor of comparative anthropology at Cal Berkeley, who says that gender is just a social construct, that it's something that uh, straight white men have invented to keep everyone else down, mm. and they have no interest in looking at the neuroscience. And if you try to bring it up, they start talking about how you are just an agent of the hetero, uh, heteronormative uh, cisgender patriarchy, mm. and and they the ideology has blinded them. Wow. Well, can you tell us a little bit about like, so in, in the book, Boys Adrift, you talk about how the education system doesn't adjust for the differences between boys and girls and how that is uh, really difficult for boys. Yeah. And more specifically, how education has changed. Yeah. So I attended public schools in Ohio, K through 12. And when I graduated from my public high school in 1977, I vividly recall the honor ceremony. Uh, almost every kid on the stage being recognized for top achievement was a boy. Mm. The valedictorian was a boy. The editor of the school newspaper was a boy. The editor of the poetry journal was a boy. There were very few girls. And this is not just my school. I mean, we've got scientists, scholars who were studying back then and who were very concerned. Notably, Myra and David Satcher uh, toured American schools in the 70s and 80s and wrote books like uh, with titles like Failing at Fairness, How Schools Shortchange Girls. Mm. Because in that era, boys won everything. They were the top scholars across the board in foreign languages and English. Not anymore. There's been a, a complete and profound transformation in who's doing well. And it's not because girls are doing better. They're not. We can talk about that. It's because boys are doing worse. Mm. Uh, the gender gap... And the flip in who's, who's doing well occurred not because girls suddenly became 
scholars, girls are reading less today than they were reading 30 years ago. But it's because boys quit. Mm. Boys don't read for fun in their spare time. We've got good data on this. Boys regard academic achievement as something girls do. And, and it's become so pervasive. So I, was, I visited over 460 schools over the last 22 years. So I was visiting a middle school. And in the hallway, they posted the principal's honor roll. And they had me speak to the kids, as I often do when I visit schools. I speak to the kids in the morning, teacher's workshop in the afternoon, parents' presentation in the evening. That's very common for me. So I have an assembly with the whole middle school. And when I meet with the kids, it's always question and answer. I'm not doing a PowerPoint presentation. It's a question and answer back and forth. So I said, all right, uh, this next question is just for the boys. Uh, gentlemen, I was in the hallway and I saw the principal's honor roll. Had 22 names on it. The top students in the school. 19 girls and three boys. Uh, can any boys raise your hand and, and tell, tell me... Why are there 19 girls and only three boys on that list? And several boys raised their hand, and they all gave variations on the, on the same answer. Their answer was, girls are smarter. Mm. And it still comes as a surprise to me to hear that, because I'm old enough to remember an era when boys were smarter, and when serious people wondered, could girls ever match the boys academically? That was a serious question 40 years ago. Not anymore. We now live in the era of Hermione Granger, where the girls are waving their hands to answer the question, and the boys are sitting quiet, uh, not, not speaking up. Uh, girls rule boys drool, girls go to college to get more knowledge, boys go to Jupiter to get more stupider. That's the culture in which these boys have been reared. Girls now outperform boys in every content area, era, at every area, at every age, K through 12. So these boys have grown up in an era where girls get better grades in every subject, including math and science. And so they reasonably conclude girls are smarter. Mm. And as a result, working hard to get a good mark is now uncool, mm. is now unmasculine. What's your problem? Are you a girl? Mm. Uh, boys don't care. It is uncool for boys to care, to care about doing well. And so that's one reason why they don't. It's not the whole story or even a big part of the story, but it's, it's an indication of how much the culture has changed in a short period of time. So what could a school do to, to change that? Is there any cultural solution other than just saying, hey, let's make it cool again to read? Like, what, what does an educator, what does a parent hearing this do? So some schools are actually doing very well. And the answer is yes. It's actually fairly easy. Uh, and I can give you examples of schools where I have led uh, two days of training, 14 hours. And then I stay in touch with the school. And it's tremendous. And mm. the boys are on fire. The girls are working hard, but the boys are working harder. Mm. When you make it, when you change the culture of the school so that it's cool to work hard, it's cool to be a gentleman and a scholar, you will be astonished. And you'll, st you'll find educators who will say things like, well, girls have better verbal ability. Uh, no, that's not a true statement. Girls have more motivation. If you, and then you can change that. And the girls will do well. They'll do better. But the boys will surprise you. Hmm. So it doesn't take much. The problem is, is that at the majority of American schools, the notion that anyone should care is totally unacceptable. 
And I've had these discussions with school board members, elected school board members, Hmm. asking for educators and school leaders just to look at the evidence. Look at the sex differences in brain development. Girls develop faster. Two standard deviations of difference. Hmm. Girls reach the halfway point in brain development at about 11 years of age. Boys not until 15 years of age. And if you don't understand that, again, you end up with a lot of boys who think school is for girls. Right. Boys who think that working hard to get a good mark, as I said, is uncool, is unmasculine. It's not difficult to change that. Mm. And if you show awareness, uh, and I always talk about how this benefits the girls as well, because girls are not the winners. And uh, we actually, uh, you look at parameters like who's taking the advanced placement exam in computer science. In 1987, boys outnumbered girls uh, by two to one. Uh, today, boys outnumber girls by more than three to one. Hmm. So uh, 30 years of pretending that gender doesn't matter has not helped the girls on this parameter. What girls need in order to get excited about computer coding is different from what boys need in order to get excited about computer coding. If you introduce that gender awareness into your instructional strategies, then you boost the number of girls who want to work on coding in their free time. This is not a guess. We have good work. Caitlin Kelleher, Washington University, St. Louis, randomly assigned sixth grade girls either to learn computer coding the way it's usually done in sixth grade in this country versus a girl-friendly computer coding instruction, and then look to see what proportion of the girls wanted to spend their free time coding. When you do it the gender-neutral way, you find only about one in six girls want to spend their free time coding. When you do it the girl-friendly way, you find more than half the girls mm. want to spend their free time coding. The lack of awareness of gender differences has the unintended consequence of reinforcing gender stereotypes. Mm, when teachers don't know anything about this, you end up with girls who think computer coding is for boys and boys who think creative writing is for girls. Yeah. When you introduce this awareness, then you have girls who love fashion design who also also love computer coding and boys who love football and video games who also love Emily Dickinson and Jane Eyre. Hmm. And I've seen this firsthand. That's fast. I love the work you've done on motivations, asking kids, you know, you talk about asking kids to do things in school that they don't want to do. Another factor that you've done a lot of research on is screens and video games. How are these things impacting this generation of boys? And maybe what are some of the healthy alternatives you offer to the screen time, the video games and the impact they're having? Yeah. So the subtitle of my book, Boys Adrift, is the five factors driving the growing epidemic of unmotivated boys and underachieving young men. Changes in school is a big factor, but it's just one of five quite independent factors. Right. A second factor is video games. And again, old people, by which I mean people over 30, they sometimes don't really get how much video games have changed. You mm. talk to a 45-year-old parent about video game, and they're, they're thinking about Pac-Man. You know, they're thinking about Pac-Man as a video game. Well, that's not helpful. Uh, they've never even seen... Uh, Call of Duty uh, or Grand Theft Auto GTA 5 played by a skilled player. And the way I explain it to, to those uh, parents, I say, imagine the best James Bond movie you ever saw, except instead of watching actors pretend to shoot other actors, you are James Bond. And in a real James Bond movie, you know that James Bond is immortal. James Bond can never die. 
Well, that's not true in the movie you're in. You can die. And in fact, you will die. You'll probably die a dozen times or more before you finally master the game. And uh, you're not watching actors pretending to shoot other actors. They're shooting at you. And if you've got a 5.1 surround sound with a 200-watt subwoofer, when the mortar round lands near you, books will fall off your bookshelf. The whole room will vibrate. The physics are astonishingly good. This, this industry earns more money than Hollywood, okay? A lot more money than Hollywood. And, and the technology is phenomenal. And the result is when a boy puts in the time and effort, it's, it, it'll take at least 40 hours of sustained effort for you to win RDR2, to complete all the missions and, and conclude the game. RDR2, Red Dead Redemption, one of the most popular games, where everything is realistic, where whether your horse comes to you or not depends on how well you treated your horse. Mm-hmm. Everything has consequences. People remember what you did years ago in the context of the game. And if you work hard and form alliances and conquer the game, boys have a great sense of achievement. They've conquered, they've mastered. And parents asked me to meet with their son and they insisted that he come in and talk to me. And I said, uh, well, tell me about yourself. He said, I'm level 85. You know what that means? I said, yeah, I think that's an allusion to World of Warcraft. You're level 85 in World of Warcraft. He said, it means I'm the best there is. There's nothing above level 85. Mm. I'm guild master. You know what that means? I said, yeah, I think it means you're master of a guild in World of Warcraft. He says, it means that there are people in Singapore, in Johannesburg, South Africa, in Liverpool, England, who bow down to me because of what I accomplished mm. in the game. I said, yeah, but in the real world, you're 28 years old, you're not working, you're not looking for work, and you live in your parents' basement. He said, yeah, okay, so you're saying that uh, what you do in the real world is more important than what you do in the virtual world. I said, yeah, I think that's a pretty fair statement of my beliefs. It was not a productive meeting. (laughs) Look, I'm a psychologist. I'm pretty confident this boy is very happy in his world, in being guild master in level 85. He doesn't have friends or a girlfriend in the real world, but he doesn't care. Yeah. His parents are pulling their hair out because they're like, he's a bum. He's got no skills in the real world. He earns a few dollars being guild master, but not enough to live on. We, we support him. Where's he going? What's yeah. going to happen? Parents are frantic. He's fine. He's <laughs> perfectly happy. He's not concerned in the least. That's the end result. Yeah. is a growing proportion of young men who are perfectly happy with their 55-inch flat screen, their 5.1 surround sound, their pornography, and their video games. Yeah. And my advice to parents, uh, don't think your son's going to grow out of it. On the contrary, he's going to find online communities of other guys who spend all their free time looking at screens. Mm. You, the parent, have to limit, govern, and guide what your mm-hmm. kid is doing online And in some cases, that may mean severely limit. But in all cases, it means no video game console in the bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. No more than 40 minutes a night playing video games. And you, the parent, have to enforce this because your son may say, 40 minutes, that's not enough for me to get started. Or another increasingly common response I, I, I hear about is the boy who says, but mom, video games are my job. I want to be the next ninja. 
and mom has no idea who she's talking, who he's talking about. Yeah. Ninja, also known as Tyler Blevins, earns over $400,000 a month playing video games. People pay money to watch him play on Twitch. And the kid's like, I'm going to be the next ninja. I don't need to worry about the war of 1812. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make a ton of money playing video games, but I can't do it in only 40 minutes a day. I need a couple hours a day minimum. And how are parents supposed to respond? So I wrote an essay for the New York Times. If you go to the New York Times website, just look for my name and mom, video games are my job. You'll find the <laughs> essay I wrote explaining how parents need to answer that. Mm. Uh, when their son says something like that. That's helpful. I know that the screens are a really big deal for this generation. And we'll talk about a little bit more about that here in a second. I want to shift gears in just a minute to talk about Girls on the Edge. But one more question real quick. You know that our show is about Christian discipleship in the family. And in a Boys Adrift, you, you say, a boy does not naturally become a gentleman, by which I mean a man who is courteous, kind, and unselfish. That behavior is not hardwired. It has to be taught. So real quick, would you just briefly tell us, where do you see the lack of discipleship, the lack of rites of passage playing a role in the challenges this generation of boys is facing? Well, it also ties into some of the points I make in my book, The Collapse of Parenting. So Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you these days shall be upon your heart. That next phrase is usually translated something like, teach them diligently to your children. That's not at all what the Hebrew says. It would be easy to say that in Hebrew. The verb would be lamed, to teach. But the verb there is not lamed. The verb is shanan. Shanan means to chisel in stone. So a better translation of that verse would be inscribe these laws, incise these laws, chisel these laws on the hearts of your children. You'll find that exegesis of Deuteronomy 6 on pages 133, 134 of my book, The Collapse of Parenting. On the very next page, I cite a column by a regular columnist for the New York Times, Jennifer Finney Boylan, who wrote a column on enlightened parenting in which she asserts that enlightened parenting means, and I quote, setting your child free to discover for themselves their own right and wrong. And if in so doing, your child becomes a stranger to you, then so be it, end wow. quote. That may seem enlightened to some, but it's not enlightened. Mm -hmm. It's a dereliction of duty. Mm. If you set your child free to discover their own right and wrong, and they live in the United States and they have internet access, what they will discover is Drake, Eminem, Bruno Mars, mainstream pornography. The parent must teach right and wrong. Right. The fifth commandment commands children to honor their parents. But increasingly, I find American parents who've got it backwards, mm. and they feel they have to honor their children. That's good. And uh, so I'm a family doctor. Mom brings her six-year-old daughter in. Daughter has a fever, and mom says she has a sore throat. And I listen to mom explain her concerns, and then I say, okay, well, we're going to need to look at her throat. And, and daughter won't. Got her lips clenched tight. She's not going to open. She doesn't want to let me look at her throat. I said, Mom, I'm going to need your help here uh, to explain to your daughter that she needs to open her mouth and let me look at her throat. And Mom said, arched her eyebrows, and Mom said, her body, her choice. Mm -hmm. My body, my choice was a slogan of the pro-choice movement and then was adopted by the anti-COVID vaccine movement, my body, my choice. Mom is invoking that slogan 
to defend her six-year-old's decision not to cooperate with the doctor to let me look at her throat. I need to look at her throat. Is this a virus? Is this a bacteria? What's going on? I can't tell unless I take a look. It is psychotic. It is a, a de detachment from reality. Mom is honoring her daughter's wishes, mm. but that's not the way our species works. Mm. And the wisdom in scripture is that vishinantam levedecha, parents need to chisel the law in the hearts of their kids, recognizing that kids are not innately good. Yeah. That parents have to chisel that law in the hearts of their children but instead, we've got the New York Times telling, and NPR also, incidentally, telling parents to set your kids free to, to choose their own right and wrong. Well, that's really unhealthy. Right. And the result is kids who are anxious, depressed, and disengaged. Hey listeners, we live in a world where anxiety, depression, and weariness seem to be the basic descriptors of our lives. For many of us, our calendars and our plates are overfull, yet our lives still lack joy. But it doesn't have to be this way. Jesus invites you to have true and abundant joy that's only found in Him. In John 15, Jesus reveals three very surprising pathways to finding this type of joy. You can discover these pathways in the new book, Overflowing Joy, by author and Bible teacher Tara Dew. This is available at LifeWay.com, and you can save 40% off with the code JOY40. Again, that's J-O-Y, the number four, the number zero, at LifeWay.com. The new book is Overflowing Joy by Tara Dew. Check it out. Hey friends, it's March, and that means Easter is right around the corner. In fact, Easter is in March this year. It's part of the reason I'm pumped to tell you about one of our sponsors who's got a really special Easter deal. This is a great time to get some new resources to disciple your family. Our friends over at Lithos Kids are having an Easter basket sale. They've got the brand new Little Pilgrims Big Journey complete box set. It's now available. Guys, I can't tell you how much I love this resource. If you don't have it, you need to go check it out. Kids and parents have loved reading about Bunyan's beloved tale of Christian and his adventure to follow the king's path to Celestial City. And now you can get all three books in one box set along with a map and it comes with a coloring book and the whole thing is just 60 bucks. You can use the code FAMILY10 to get 10% off your entire order at Lithos Kids right now. So what a great discipleship opportunity. To find all this, go to lithoskids.com, see all the items in their Easter promo, including their new release, The Parables of Jesus, and the Kingdom of God Bible Storybook. Guys, we love Lithos Kids. You're going to love them too. Go check it out today, lithoskids.com, and remember the promo, FAMILY10, to get 10% off your entire order. Okay, Dr. Sex, as in, I'm invested in wanting healthy boys for sure because my daughters have friends that are boys. I hope and pray one day they will have husbands. And so I definitely want this generation of boys to uh, be raised to honor their parents and to understand their gender identity is something that is important. But let's shift gears for a minute to talk about girls since I have three girls. The first factor you talk about in Girls on the Edge is sexual identity. You say sexuality is good, but sexualization is bad. Sexuality is about your identity as a woman or a man. That's a healthy part of being human. 
a healthy part of being an adult. But sexualization is about being an object for the pleasure of others, about being on display for others. Sexuality is about who you are. Sexualization is about how you look. What impact is culture drive uh, is culture's drive to sexualize young girls having on this generation? It's having an immensely harmful impact. So Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion mm. did this song WAP, W-A-P, which is a hymn to vaginal lubrication. Uh, there's no mention of love or relationship. It's all about the act of sex, and it is obscene and it is profane. It was the number one hit song in the United States, the number one streamed video on YouTube. Kylie Jenner appears in the uh, YouTube. Kylie Jenner has over 300 million followers on Instagram. And it's so toxic, but also so characteristic of what girls are indulged in right now. Uh, And girls look at this. Okay, this is the most popular video in the United States. New York Times and the Wall Street Journal don't agree on much, but they both agreed that this was the greatest thing ever. This is wonderful. This is women expressing their sexual agency. And there's a number of girls who look at this and they're like, yuck. If that's what it means Mm. to be a girl, then maybe I am not. Mm. Because, look, the, the most popular women on Instagram, women like Kylie Jenner with more than 300 million followers, specialize in the uh, half-naked selfie with pouted lips. And that's not me. I don't want to do that. I have no interest in that. That's disgusting. Oh, maybe I'm a boy. I went on TikTok and I found out I'm actually a boy. And so we've got this explosion, explosion of teenage girls who are deciding they're boys And there are a number of factors driving that, which we can talk about. But one is that the cultural construction of what it means to be a girl, a woman, has been so profaned Mm -hmm. by this culture of obscenity and profanity that it just drives girls away. If, 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 If that's what you're supposed to do, pose with pouting lips in lingerie, I'm that's not me. I'm not doing that. I am impressed with your knowledge of pop culture. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I I have visited a great many schools. The kids teach me. (laughs) I'm just like, I've never, I mean, I've never even thought to, I mean, I've thought about what these artists are saying, but I've never paid that close attention. I think because it's so, it is so repulsive and offensive. Yeah. But to think about, you know, some of our kids don't have the luxury of not paying attention. It's being, it's being forced in front of them and they're, and they're watching and they're being formed by that. In that same chapter, you say, the culture of 50 years ago encouraged romance without sex. Today's culture encourages sex without romance. For many girls, the result is profoundly depressing, literally. And you use a verse from Song of Songs to talk about the lesson we should be learning. Do not awaken love before it's time. How can parents lead their daughters well as they navigate a culture that is rushing them into sexuality? Yeah, that... Line, do not, I charge you, I charge you, daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse, do not awaken love before it's time. Spoken by the female narr- narrator in Song of Songs, repeated three times. I don't believe there's any other verse in Song of Songs that's repeated three times. Mm-hmm. There's great wisdom in that. I charge you, daughters of D- Jerusalem, do not arouse, do not awaken love before it's time. The narrator clearly understands it's possible 
to awaken love before it's time. That's why she's advising you not to do it because it's really a bad idea. That's wisdom. And it is wisdom that our contemporary culture is utterly unaware of. Mm. And instead, you know, when I speak on this topic for parents, I'll show them, just go to uh, walmart.com or amazon.com in the third week of Halloween and look at the most popular Halloween costumes Mm. for eight-year-old girls and their French-made outfits with stiletto heels pantyhose and brassiere tops. You know, imagine going into Sears 30 years ago and saying, hey, I'd like to buy a Halloween costume for my eight-year-old daughter that consists of a brassiere top, uh, pantyhose, and a bikini bottom. You know, they'd call the police on you. They'd think you're some kind of pervert. But now, as I've got all these slides showing, it's the number one most Mm -hmm. popular outfit. You can still dress up as a bunch of grapes. That's number 42. Uh, (laughs) But when you suggest that to your eight-year-old daughter, she'll say, but mom, only the fat girls are doing that. Mm -hmm. All the cool girls are dressing up as a pussycat doll. And these are eight-year-olds being pushed to uh, display their bodies in in ways they have no understanding what that signifies. They're pretending to be sexual before they are sexual. And that's not benign. That has all kinds of bad consequences. It's encouraging girls to perform without knowing who they are or what they want. And the result is girls who are really confused. Mm. How then, how can we help our daughters develop a sense of who they are? And without their identity being rooted in someone else's standards, especially when so much of our daughter's identity formation has been tied to sexuality, grades, achievements, or looks. Well, a lot of very basic recommendations I make in Girls on the Edge. First of all, you have to insist on modesty. You know, what how old was this girl? Nine years old, came home from school. Mom told me in tears. And again, the girl may say, but all the cruel girls dress like that. And this is where the parent has to be the parent and say, I don't care. That's not the way you're going to dress. Or move to a school where there's a uniform that's enforced. You may have to switch schools. You may have to move to different states, as my wife and I did, because we were not happy with the schools in in Montgomery County, Maryland. So we moved to Chester County, Pennsylvania, sold my practice, found a new job. It was a big deal. But your kid has to be your first priority. And if the local school is toxic, then you have to move. Wow. As a Christian parenting podcast, we talk about seeking the fruit of the Spirit for and in our children. It was interesting to see that you said that self-control in childhood is a far better predictor of success in adulthood than grades in school. Why do you think that is, and how can we help our kids develop self-control? Okay, so that research I shared in my book, The Collapse of Parenting, which has two chapters devoted to longitudinal cohort studies, meaning studies in which you follow kids— from childhood through adolescence into adulthood to 32, 35, 38, 40, 50 years of age. So these studies have been going on for 40, 50 years. And in the study that, in in the part that you just mentioned, I'm citing one study where they uh, assessed kids at 12 years of age. They got their grades from the school, also assessed their self-control, their emotional stability, and then follow these kids until 38 years of age, or maybe it was 32 years of age, 20 years, yeah. So you follow them for another 20 years. And 20 years later, you track these kids down and you determine their health, wealth, and happiness. And you look to see what characteristic of that child measured when the child was 12 years old 
most accurately predicts health and wealth and happiness 20 years later. Well, it's not grades at school. It's not emotional stability. It's not friendliness. It is self-control. Hmm. Self-control. Powerfully and accurately predicts health and wealth and happiness 20 years later. So it follows from this study and many others like it that our first job as a parent is to teach character, conscientiousness, honesty, self-control. Again, that's not a sermon. It is a robust empirical finding. We've got many studies showing that character, virtue, self-control, honesty, predict health, wealth, and happiness 20, 30, 40 years down the road way better than grades, test scores, or even emotional stability. So that's what we should be doing. And yet, American parents, for the most part, don't get that. And I've seen this firsthand. You know, as a family doctor, 20 years ago, you would still have parents who would say things like, do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself. That's not a question, it's a command. Mm -hmm. But over those last 20 years, I've seen that command soften, morph into a question. The question is often something like, well, you know, how would you feel if someone did that to you? Mm -hmm. That's part of what I mean by the collapse of parenting. Parents now feel, now ask when they should command. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's good. Okay, in your last chapter in Girls on the Edge, it's about a child's spiritual life. Of course, that is a particular interest to us as we like to focus on leading our families spiritually. How do you see the spiritual leadership of a home as an important aspect of parenting? So indeed, as you pointed out, the last three chapters of Girls on the Edge are mind, body, and spirit. That last chapter is spirit. It turns out that what a girl needs to become a woman of faith is very different from what a boy needs to become a man of faith. Mm -hmm. And we actually have lots of research on this. When I set out to write uh, the first edition of Girls on the Edge, I wasn't sure if I'd find a lot of scholarly research published in peer-reviewed journals on this topic. But it turns out there's quite a bit. What a girl needs is different from what a boy needs. And unfortunately, most churches across the United States don't get it. Mm. And when I speak to youth pastors, I'll show them a flyer from a church I visited, the high school youth group. It's a pizza party where they're saying, hey, come on, we're going to have a great time. We're going to play video games and eat pizza. Okay, that is a church that has lost its way, mm -hmm. that doesn't understand. That's not your role. If kids want to do a pizza party, they don't need the church's help to do that. They're perfectly capable of doing pizza parties on their own. What the church needs to do is to create community bonds across generations. Yeah. To become a woman of faith, a girl needs to be with women mm -hmm. of faith. To become a man of faith, a boy needs to be with men of faith. Yeah. And this is something the church can do, can do, because the parents are going to do all the heavy lifting. But the church facilitates, the church organizes the three-day canoe trip down the St. Croix River, girls with women. Eight girls, eight women. Each morning, a girl gets in a canoe with a different woman, not her mother, and they're going to paddle three hours down the St. Croix River, stunningly beautiful, divides Wisconsin from Minnesota. And then at noon, they're going to pull off at the Portage area, which is maintained by the National Park Service, and they're going to make lunch as a, as a team of, of eight and eight. And then that evening, they're going to sit around the campfire and tell us, tell stories and share stories. You're going to create a community, girls with women. You do the same thing with boys, boys with men. 
that's what girls need. And the church, most churches are dropping the ball. Mm-hmm. They're not doing it. Instead, they're honoring kids and letting kids do what they think kids want to do. Yeah. Pizza parties and video games. It's not what kids need. So they need leadership from the church. They need leadership from the parents. They need parents to teach kids. You know, boys want to be men. But increasingly across the United States, I find men who want to be boys, mm. uh, men who are sitting with their 11-year-old son who's teaching them dad how to play GTA V, that's upside down. That's mm. not what kids need. That's not what a boy needs to become a man of faith. It's not what a girl needs to become a woman of faith. I love so much of what you just said. I love that picture of uh, these kids don't need these peer-to-peer pizza relationships. They can have those. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they need and the church can provide is is that mentoring. Uh, the concept of honoring the kid instead of honoring the parent is also really sticking with me. I think that is a, a cultural phenomenon that we're experiencing yeah. right now, as well as um, considering the commands of God to be suggestions instead of commands. Like, what do you think about that instead of, no, this is the way it's going to be? Mm-hmm. You're painting a really beautiful picture with some really practical things that that a parent and a school can do. Uh, Dr. Sachs, before we let you go, and I, we're so grateful for your time, could you tell us a little bit maybe about how listeners can keep up with you going forward? And then would you let us know if there's, uh, we would love it if our listeners could pray for you. What are the things that our listeners can pray for the Sachs family for? Well, thank you. Uh, so I hope that uh, listeners will visit my website, leonardsachs.com, L-E-O-N-A-R-D-S-A-X.com. And uh, on that front page, uh, if you sign up for my newsletter, you'll get uh, plenty of information about the next time I'm speaking in your area, as well as things I'm writing about uh, that might interest you, whether it's the gender gap with boys falling behind girls or the dangers of TikTok for girls. And for prayer, I would request that you help our family to stay strong. My wife and my daughter are committed Christians as I am, but it's a challenge in a secular world. And I would pray that you open hearts to hear this message in a world confused and adrift that we can uh, get this message out. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Sachs. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks for listening, friends. If you think it's as important as we do to disciple our families, please help us out by giving us a great review wherever you listen to the podcast. Visit one of our sponsors and please share this episode with one of your friends who needs to hear it. If you want to keep up with us or join the conversation, you can follow the Family Discipleship Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. We love you listeners and we will see you next week.